Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Ecclesiastes 1. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries round to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. History merely repeats itself. It's all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. And on to Ecclesiastes 5. Even so, I've noticed one thing, at least, that is good. It's good for people to eat, drink, and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life that God has given them, and to accept their lot in life. And it's a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it. To enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this is indeed a gift from God. God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. God's word for us today. In February of 2016, through the efforts of our own Bobby Rains, I was sponsored as a pilgrim for my very first visit to the Holy Land. I saw all the sights, walked in the footsteps of Jesus. I met some really really interesting people, including this guy. Yes, that's Garrett. This is how Garrett and I met. He was on the same pilgrimage as I was, and we were roommates. McBrayer, McHugh. That's just how it happened. And don't blame me for bringing him here. After all, I said it was Bobby who arranged this visit, and we all became victims of fate afterwards. I had a couple more pictures I was going to share, but I sent them to him first, and he did not approve. So this is the one you get. And I have to say this before I get to the point of my 2016 trip to the Holy Land. I'm going back, and I want you to go with me. Uh, Next slide, please. May 6th through the 16th, 2024. Do not tell me after service today, I'm going. I'll forget it before I get to the truck. Email me. Don't message me on Facebook. I hardly ever check the messages on Facebook. Just send me an email if you're interested in going. And uh, I've been many times now, and it's always a magical experience 
It's always a, a fantastic cultural experience, spiritual experience. And uh, you've got time, if you're going, to get ready to go. Get your passport ready. Save your pennies and your shekels. Find a place to board your dog or your kids or your husband. Get your knee replaced. You've got plenty of time. Get that tendon surgery done. Uh, and from the response I've had already so far, we may have as many as four dozen to go in this time. So it's going to be a big crowd. It's going to be fun. It will be expensive, but it will be worth it. Yes, there are always travel concerns, but statistically, it is more dangerous to live in the United States than it is to go to Israel. Three to one, far more dangerous here in this country than there. And uh, I know some of you, it's not on your bucket list, but you just haven't traveled with us. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Mazel tov, let's go. But back to, back to February of 2016. As I prepared for that trip to Israel, multiple friends started sending me copies of the same magazine article at the same time. It had just been printed in the Smithsonian Magazine, and it was, un- it was entitled, Unearthing the World of Jesus. The main story was about a Catholic priest from Mexico Father Juan Solano. Ten years ago then, now closer to 20, Solano began raising money to purchase a little piece of land on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And his intent was to build a chapel and a retreat center and a hotel with about 100 rooms. And he succeeded wildly. He raised $20 million. And he purchased 24 acres right on the Sea of Galilee. The only speed bump remaining in the road was governmental red tape. No one builds anything you think is bad in Walton County, but no one builds anything in the Holy Land until the Israeli Antiquities Authority comes and puts a shovel in the ground and deems the site free and clear of any artifacts artifacts or historical significance. Well, the archaeologists showed up with their shovels, and they do what archaeologists do. They started poking and prodding. For about a month or so. And just before they left, they found the top of an ancient wall. And the team gathered around with their brushes and their shovels. And after a few more days, it dawned on them what they had discovered. They were standing on the ancient site of what Hebrew speakers call Migdal. Or what we call, in our New Testament, Magdala. As in Mary Magdalene. It was a historic village home of Mary Magdalene. And more than the remains of an ancient village, beneath the dirt was a Jewish synagogue dating to the time of Jesus. The only such synagogue ever discovered in the Holy Land. And for the first time, the world could say with confidence, this is a place that Jesus actually taught people. So imagine my excitement when we stopped at that exact spot on my trip in 2016. The archaeologists were still there. Ezra Anin, our guide, got on the bus microphone and he said, we're going to a new location that I've never taken any group to and no one on any tour has ever been able to visit. It's called Migdal or Magdalene or Magdala and uh, we're going to visit a synagogue from the time of Jesus. Well, when he said that over the microphone, I went bananas. I had read the Smithsonian article. Like I said, multiple people had sent it to me. I'm ping-ponging around the bus. People just, and all these boring preachers just couldn't 
understand what I was talking about being so excited. And when we got there, they had not even closed it yet. The archaeologists are working, and we're one of the first tourist groups, and we just walk into the archaeological dig and walked right into the synagogue that now you can't get anywhere near and just sat down on a stone that any one of the 12 disciples or Jesus himself may have sat down on. The frescoes were still on the columns. The mosaics newly uncovered from the floor. And now, having gone back a few times, I've even had a couple conversations with Father Solano, and he continues to talk about the joy of this discovery. He said to me, all I really wanted to do was build a chapel. But now I've got this historical site that I really can't own. I have to share it with the world. And here's the amazing thing about that. That village had been there the entire time. It had simply been covered up under the dust of the years, sand all the way from the Sahara, the rising and falling of the Sea of Galilee, depositing silt there. And the reason that it covered, was covered up so quickly was because the people of Magdala had joined into a rebellion during the Great Jewish War, and the Roman legions showed up and killed them all in one afternoon. The entire city. And the city went dormant for 2,000 years before it was uncovered. So that's where I actually left you last week. I talked to you last week about the universe, its size. I talked to you about God, how if the universe is the size that it is that we have learned in the last decades, then what does that say about God? Well, guess what? The universe has been this size all along. Your entire life, the history of humanity's entire existence, the universe has been massive beyond description, and only now are we beginning to understand that. And I said to you last week, if the world is this big, what does that say about God? How magnificent God must be. In the last hundred years, we've come, more, come to understand more about our world than all of human history before it. But our theology has not kept pace. We've often kept a very small God. A very fragile God. God of medieval theology or Reformation theology. But our God is this indescribable, always unfolding, always creating, always expanding, impossible to capture with word or thought God. The phrase I used last week is God is all grown up now. We just didn't know it. And I have talked the last two weeks about fusing, if it's possible, and I believe it is, spirituality with science. That science and spirituality speak different languages, but they speak to the same single reality. And that when we say with the psalmist, God, your glory is in the heavens, that statement is more true today than when the psalmist wrote it. Because now we know the heavens are so much broader. Now, all that to say this, not everyone has been convinced that my proposal is a good one. The protest comes from two directions. Literalists don't care much for what I've had to say the last couple of weeks. I've learned that recently. Be <laughs> because to give up a literal reading of Genesis 1 and 2 is a slippery slope. 
Their entire interpretive scheme, a great chunk of their worldview is threatened by taking a metaphorical or mythical interpretation. And again, myth is not untrue. Myth is simply the story of origins. And I've said, I think, enough to that in the last two weeks to just let it settle. And if you are a literalist and you're still attending, (laughs) thank you for taking the Bible seriously. Thank you for your commitment to the text. I simply invite you to keep wrestling with it. Keep going. Keep your commitment to the text. Absolutely. But as one who is a formal, former literalist, a former young earth creationist, a recovering fundamentalist, I understand and I know that feeling when your foundational view is threatened or undercut, and I know that feeling of falling. That if this isn't what I thought it was, what else in this book isn't what I thought it was? Oh, that's a great question. And it will take you on a magnificent journey. Don't be afraid of that journey. You'll have to give up some certainty. You'll have to give up some theological control. But you just might have to express a little faith. So I encourage you to keep going. But I want to take just a few minutes to address the other polarity. The other source of criticism against this view of fusing science and spirit. And it comes from the scientific side. And it goes more or less like this. Look at the universe you have been describing. We are nothing. We are of no consequence whatsoever. We are galactic ants in the universe, which is a quote that I really like when it was written to me this week. And continuing that email, your eyes are almost open. For someone who appears to be as intelligent as you are, why can't you take the next step and give up this Stone Age God of yours? Theism is only a form of anxiety management in the face of an overwhelming universe. It provides a false sense of security, and the quicker you understand that humankind is a biological accident, the better off you will be. End of quote. Now, of course, those words came from a different kind of fundamentalist. One that doesn't believe in God, but he is a fundamentalist nonetheless. As much as the brimstone preachers of my childhood were fundamentalists who hated science and stated with authority that if you carefully read the book of Genesis, you would see that the world was created on October 23rd, 4004 BC. You didn't know that? The counter-criticism comes from those who are more militant in their atheism, not agnostics, not skeptics. Not questioners. I am all those things. It's those who say that science can answer all the questions. That leaves no room for things of the spirit or of God. And dismisses all faith claims or religious or transcendent experience. And I want to speak to that for the next few minutes. The writer of Ecclesiastes never saw images from the Hubble Space Telescope. He didn't know the vastness of this world. If he had seen these images, if he had known how small we really are, he might have just killed a bottle of Tito's and walked into traffic. He's already a depressive, heavy, wet, wet cloud raining on everyone's parade. 
He is the Eeyore of the Old Testament. It's all for nothing. Good morning if it is, but I doubt it. I wish I could say yes, but I can't. Days, weeks, months, who knows? The writer of Ecclesiastes' favorite word is meaningless. It's all meaningless. Nothing matters. Who cares? It's all useless. He's not an atheist. He's not a scientist. But he is right on the cusp of being a nihilist. An irredeemable pessimist for whom no purpose can be found in life. Now, I'm about to make the most arrogant attempt in the history of homiletics, which is to say, no preacher has ever been as hopelessly as ambitious as I am about to be. I am going to tell you the meaning of life. <laughs> Your search is over. <laughs> but I'm not the first. Ecclesiastes, the word, the word means the preacher. And I'm going to tell you what he told us all those centuries ago, even as he waded through the despondent waters of his own search for meaning and what all great wisdom traditions have known all along. And I'm going to finally this morning answer the question of why. Remember, science wrestles with the questions of how and when. Spirituality wrestles with who. And we've determined for us that it is God. And spirituality wrestles with the questions, question of why. Why are we here in this vast universe? And we should go ahead and add what to this list too. What is our purpose? These questions are more essential now than ever, knowing the massive size of our universe. And these are not questions that science can answer. Science cannot account for human consciousness. Why is it that we are aware? Why is it that we have emotional and spiritual capacity? It cannot tell us the how. It cannot tell us the how, the what, and the why of why we are unique, sentient beings. Science can tell us a lot about what we are made of, how our bodies have adapted to become what they are, how our hearts work, how our brains work, but science cannot explain spirit or soul, the divine force that animates human life. It is a mystery. They cannot, not yet anyway, explain the energy that moves, creates, and holds all things together. At the end of language, scientists often just resort to calling it the God particle because they have no other words for it, no other explanation. And it is here that the language of faith, those in the spiritual disciplines, those who are practitioners of the soul can best speak. And I'll try to do that right now. The meaning of life is life. I'm also anticlimactic. <laughs> but on this Sunday, that is June 18th, 2023, that is my best answer. The meaning of life is life. I want you to sit with that for just a second. 
Here's what we know about science and the spirit. On this planet, and so far only on this planet, there is an unquenchable, unstoppable, inescapable drive to live. Put a house plant on a shelf in your home. If you have a window in that room, that plant will twist and contort itself to bend toward the light that it might live. Drop seeds into the most arid ground and something in that seed says, break open and seek the water that is feet, yards, hundreds of yards beneath you to live. Animals on the Serengeti, in the jungle of the Amazon, on the great North American plains, in the deepest oceans, predators and low-ranking feeder organisms caught in the food chain, they are all trying to live, all trying to survive, to produce offspring, to keep going, to keep living. And even those animals and plants that die naturally in the process are for the purpose that other things might live. Every living thing on this planet wants to keep living. It wants to keep giving birth to the next generation. Everything reaches for greater complexity, stretches out to break the next barrier, to obtain a higher state of being and living from protozoa to people, from earthworms to ecosystems, from mitochondria to manatees. There is a hustling, bustling drive to flourish, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, if we might use the words of Genesis. And science can tell us with more and more detail how this happens, but it cannot tell us why. It does not have the capacity to express in words or theory the holy switch that was turned on, the divine spark that has ignited and put life into motion on this particular place in the universe. Here are the words of Ecclesiastes again. Old, seasoned, well-worn, workable words in the end of all things. After he has analyzed and deconstructed human existence, he says this. I have noticed one thing at least that is good. Eeyore. There's one good thing out there. And he says this. It's good for people to eat, drink, and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them and to accept their lot in life. Do you have food to eat? Say amen if you do. Do you have good drink to drink? Some better than others. Do you have rewarding work? Mm, Sometimes, right? Do you have someone or someones to share this with, be it a spouse, a partner, children, or friends? Then you have everything you need to be happy. Believe it or not, so anticlimactic, isn't it? The meaning of life. If you can eat and drink, enjoy your work, and you're with others to share this experience with, there is nothing else to chase in the entire universe. You are blessed beyond measure and blessed beyond measure of most human beings even that have ever walked the face of the earth. I got good food, I got good drink, 
I got good work. I got good friends. What, what else is there really to ask for? Good dogs. Okay, good dogs. Yeah. <laughs> With or without good dogs, and I have two very good dogs. You have all the capacity to find all the meaning and purpose there is in this life because you have life. And if you have the choice, then you can enjoy it or you can choose, quite frankly, to be miserable with it. Because happiness is a choice you make and misery is the same. There are people in this world, people that you know, who are miserable and they have chosen that condition for their life. And their circumstances are no different They might even be better than those who've chosen to be ecstatic with the life that they've been blessed with. Frederick Buechner, always prescient, here is your life. You might never have been, but you are because the party would not have been complete without you. So we must be careful with our lives for Christ's sake because it would seem that they are the only lives we are going to have in this puzzling and perilous world. And so they are very precious, and what we do with them matters enormously. Everybody knows that. We need no one to tell us that. Yet in another way, perhaps we do always need to be told, because there is always the temptation to believe that we have all the time in the world, whereas the truth of it is we do not. We have only One life and the choice of how we are going to live it must be our own choice. Not one that we let the world make for us. Because for each of us, there will come a time of no return, a point beyond which no longer we will have life left to go back and start all over again. I'll return to those words in this theme next week, but I'll leave you with a little zen. A monk was instructing his students and he said to them, Suppose that this great earth was just one great body of water. And suppose that you were able to toss one tiny hoop into that water. For a hundred years it floats. North, south, east, west. At the end of those hundred years, there is one single blind sea turtle In this great unlimited sea. What are the chances for that one creature in the water. Blind as it is to come to the top of the water. And stick its little head through that one hoop. Well the students think on it a minute. And they say finally. Well sir it would be unusual if it could ever happen at all. No matter how many chances the turtle got. And the teacher replied, and just so, it is extremely rare that one gets this chance to be a living human being. That you are a life form on this planet means that you have beaten all the odds. That you are a human being on this planet means that you have won the cosmos' version of the lottery. That you have the opportunity to live, to be, to love, is nothing short of a miracle. Whether you be a spiritual person or a scientist.
It is divine providential grace. So asking the question of why may not be as important as we think. It's living out the question of what. You may have never been, but here you are. What will you do with the one single life that you have been blessed with?